unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. Welcome back to the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. David, how are you doing today? Nathan, I'm good. How are you? I am good, and I'm excited for this week. I'm always excited for these episodes, but going through this week's show notes, I was a little bit extra excited because this one is a good show that you've got planned out for us today. Well, thanks. I'm excited, too. And today's show is our attempt to answer this question. How do you add more impact to every single sentence? It started last week when I read this article from The Economist. The Economist is a British magazine, and it used to be my favorite, but I hardly read it anymore. But I was scrolling through Twitter, and the AKA, also called the All-Knowing Algorithm, Mm. served up an ad for an article in The Economist with the headline, What to Read to Become a Better Writer. So I clicked. You know, many people say that the AKA knows even more than Google. Many people. Yeah. So the article, the article starts with a very strange picture, right? It's three women in an outdoor cafe. Two are having a drink, laughing, having a great time. And the third one is writing on this old-fashioned portable manual typewriter, scowling and trying to desperately concentrate while her friends are partying. I've always thought the British have a strange way of looking at things. This article recommends five books. I cherry-picked some tips from three of them that would be especially useful for copywriters when you want to add more impact to your writing. And here's something else that's awesomely useful. Copy is powerful. You're responsible for how you use what you hear in this podcast, and most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims or if you're writing copy for offers in highly regulated industries like health, finance, and business opportunity, you may want to get a legal review after you write and before you start using your copy. My larger clients do this all the time. The main thing I was looking at when I was cherry-picking these ideas from the more than 1,000 pages of books is What's going to give each sentence in your copy more impact? I know a lot of people recommend power words or startling statements, but a reader can only take so much of those things. Too much electric intensity without stopping or moderating it, modulating it, that can wear out a reader. For most of your copy, what's important is clarity and momentum. Clarity often comes from leaving things out or fine-tuning some of the words you use. Momentum comes from moving your reader emotionally, which is usually what we think of as entertainment. In movies, novels, and songs, that emotional movement comes from the reader's or listener's reaction to a story about someone or something else. But in copy, we focus on the readers themselves. People get moved when they think about something wrong in their lives, and then they also get moved when they think about getting something they want that they couldn't have before. 
Now, the books I went through, I'll name them in a sec, are not copywriting books. So they cover things that are different from what we're concerned about when we write copy. But there's a few things where there's nearly 100% overlap, and that's impact. Writing that keeps the reader reading. And that's what I was looking for when I got these tips for you. I found the best stuff from these three books, and we'll put links to the books in the show notes. So here are the books. One is On Writing Well by William Zinser. I read this book first time nearly 50 years ago when I was a journalist. I've come to appreciate it more over the years, and I've assigned it to mentoring clients to polish up their writing skills. Other copywriting teachers also assign this book. It's mostly for journalists and business writers, but many of his ideas work for copy too. The second book I learned about in the Economist article I'd never learned, knew about this one before, Style Lessons in Clarity and Grace by Joseph M. Williams and Joseph Bizup. The two Josephs go into a lot of depth, but little things that make a difference, and we'll cover a few of those things today. Third book, I didn't like a whole lot, even though the writer of The Economist article did. I don't think there's too much in we could use, but there was one very important thing in there, so I'm not recommending the book, but I'll include a link just in case it it piques your curiosity, and it's called A Sense of Style, The Thinking Person's Guide to Writing in the 21st Century by Steven Pinker. Okay, now we know where it came from. Let's talk about what it is with the first of the five tactics. And tactic number one is from Zinser in the book on writing well. That tactic is simplify, simplify. So do you know anyone whose theme song is why use one word when 10 words will do? No. I know people, you don't. I, I do, but to be honest, I keep conversations with them to a minimum. <laughs> it's true that simplifying things can be hard, and sometimes the more intelligent and more creative you are, the more information you feel like you need to pack into a sentence or a paragraph or a rant. But one thing is for certain, complexity is confusing especially in copy, and the confused mind does not buy. Or in the case of instructions or even emergency orders, the confused mind does not always comply. So Zinser in his book gives this great example from World War II, which is totally relevant for today as well. In 1942, there was a very real threat of bombings on American soil. Though this never happened, it was certainly possible as far as anyone could tell. One measure to protect the people working to support the war effort was a blackout order. Now, here's the original one. See if you can figure out what the bureaucrat was trying to say. Such preparations shall be made as will completely obscure all federal buildings and non-federal buildings during an air raid for any period of time from visibility by reason of internal or external illumination. Mm. The only reasonable response to that was, huh? President Roosevelt knew what they were trying to say, and he had a better idea. Tell them, he said, that in buildings where they have to keep the work going to put something across the windows. Score one for simplifying. By the way, Zinser points out that humans have an attention span of about 30 seconds, if that, unless you get them interested in something. And he urges writers not to blame readers. If the readers don't stay interested, that's on the writer. So... He says things to watch out for include cluttered sentences with 
just too much stuff in them. Switching pronouns in the middle of the sentence. And this is in the older sense of the word pronoun. So that in a mid-sentence switch, the reader can't figure out who's talking or who you're talking about. Don't do that. And another thing that creates, that is anti-simplify is following one sentence with another one where there's no obvious logical connection between the first one and the second one. Okay, one of the rules I follow myself, it's not really in his book, but I've heard it from a lot of people and I just discovered it worked, is after I've cooled down a bit, because I often get my brain heated all, all heated up when I'm writing, after I've cooled down a bit, I go over it again to make sure, just to make sure nobody could possibly misunderstand what I'm trying to say. It's a good habit to have yourself. So, Nathan, any thoughts on simplifying and simplifying? Yeah, so I am a huge fan of the way that Ernest Hemingway would write. And one of his rules was one idea per sentence, one overall idea per paragraph. And a lot of times... I will go through my sentences and I'll make sure that by the end of the sentence, they haven't already forgotten what I was trying to say at the beginning of the sentence. And uh, that's one of the things that I think a lot of people have trouble with. But if it feels like there's too many ideas or if it feels like by the end of the sentence, I'm starting to forget what was the point being made at the beginning of the sentence, I'll just chop it up into two sentences. And so being very distinct and having one idea per sentence and one over idea overall idea per paragraph is a great thing to keep in mind, a great kind of like rule of thumb for making sure that you can do this with your writing. Yeah, that is great. I've never heard that particular one from Hemingway, but I love it. And I'm going to add that to my little collection of rules. So I, I try to do that too, but I don't know if I've ever said it quite as well as that. All right, let's go to tactic number two. This is three ways to be more concise. And this is from another book, Style Lessons in Grace and Clarity by Joseph Williams and Joseph Bizup. So when it comes to simplifying, you usually do this by cutting out unneeded words. Sometimes, and I think this goes back to what you said, Nathan, sometimes you can simplify by taking a sentence that's too loaded up with ideas and breaking it into smaller simpler sentences. But most of the time, your best bet is to start out by weeding the extra words in a sentence. Mm -hmm. And so these two Josephs have three ways to do this in their chapter called concision. That's a more literary way of saying conciseness. But despite the snobbery in this chapter title, they're still great tips. And here they are, three of them. One, delete words that mean little or nothing. These words sound like they mean something and could be important, but when you step back, take a deep breath, get a clear eye, most of the time they just fill up space and blow up your sentences. Uh, words like kind of, actually, generally. Okay, number two, delete words that repeat the meanings of other words. These are pairs of words that sound very impressive, but again, they dilute the impact of your sentence. You'll do better by choosing one and throwing the other one overboard. A few examples. Any and all. Because the word all actually repeats the effective meaning of the word any. True and accurate. Various and sundry. 
And three, replace a phrase with a word. Replace the reason for with why. Replace in the event that with if. Replace it is possible that with may. Now, it is possible to take all of this too far. And that's when you go beyond concise to terse. When you sound more like a robot than a human being. A good way to know that you're at concise, but you haven't gotten to terse yet, is to read your sentence or paragraph out loud. If it moves smoothly, but it doesn't come across as halting or abrupt, you're good. And this is more of a gut feel thing than a rule-based thing. So any of those rules ring any bells for you? Yeah. So when I first started copywriting, my first paid client was for a radio company, a radio station, and I was writing 10 second and 30 second spots. And so every word had to count. And it was that same way when I was doing mailings, every word you had a specific amount of paper and a specific amount of space for text and every word had to count. I think now that we have digital advertising and sales pages that can go on for weeks and Facebook posts that can go on and on and on, we have maybe lost the appreciation for why concise matters so much. And it's not just because you're paying per word, which you aren't anymore, but it is because in order to keep the attention of the reader, we need to make sure that we're not filling them up with stuff that doesn't matter. Yeah. Great, great point. Well, I don't think I knew that about you, that the first thing you did was radio spots, but wow, what a, what a tremendous discipline to, to learn about the economy of words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think writing lyrics is like that too, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, cool. Okay, so tactic number three is the one kind of word not to use. And this is from Style Lessons in Grace and Clarity. English is a great language, and one thing we do constantly to make it more interesting is we add new words. Here are three new words added to the online Merriam-Webster dictionary. And every month they update their list. They have new words added to the dictionary. I just discovered this when I was researching the article, or the for this podcast, rather. So here are three new words. Dumb phone. A cell phone that does almost none of the amazing things your iPhone or Android does. It basically makes and receives calls. What a concept. And sends and receives text messages. In other words, janky. It Mm kind of means junky as an adjective. Not like a junkie, but like something is junky. Low quality. Rumor has it that this word started out in hip hop about 30 years ago. And third one, adorkable. Dorky, but adorable. Like when a nerd is endearing. Now, if your market knows these words like dumb phone or janky or adorkable, you, you conceivably could use them in your copy. All three of them pack a lot of punch. And those are three of the 370 new words Merriam-Webster added to its dictionary just in September. But there's one kind of word you should definitely not use in your copy. It belongs to a category of words called nominalizations. The two Josephs say, no element of style more characterizes turgid writing, writing that feels abstract, indirect and difficult than lots of nominalizations 
especially as subjects of verbs. In other words, at the beginning of a sentence. So what is a nominalization? Well, it is a technical term coined by linguist Noam Chomsky around 1970. And rather than getting into the technical details, I'll just tell you how to notice them. A couple ways to spot them are words that end in T-I-O-N or M-E-N-T or E-N-C-E. Words like instigation, comportment, ambivalence. A second way to spot them, which takes more detective work, and this is the technical part, is to see if they come from a verb or an adjective. Like take the word outsourcing. It's supposed to be a noun, but it comes from the verb to outsource. There is an even easier way to stop nominalizations dead in their tracks. Ask yourself, can I see a picture of it in my mind? Can I see a picture of instigation? Can I see a a picture of comportment? It might lead to a picture of something else, but can I see a picture of that word? Can I see a picture of ambivalence? I might be able to see a picture of a person, person, not not nominalization, being ambivalent, ambivalent, an adjective, but ambivalence, I can't actually see ambivalence. So let me give you another example. See if you can make a picture of this mentally. The problem was the tendency towards expansion. What in the world does that look like? (laughs) Now try this. The problem was the balloon kept getting bigger and bigger. Mm. Can you see that? Mm -hmm. Nathan, are you standing back a little, not trying to be too close (laughs) to the balloon when it pops. A little bit. Yeah, see, the words you can't picture are a special problem for copywriters. I mean, Gene Schwartz talks extensively about the value of picture words in his book, The Brilliance Breakthrough. He doesn't specifically get into nominalizations, at least with that label. But the problem with nominalizations, again, is you can't create a picture of them in your mind. These words represent abstract, formless concepts. And you need prospects to be able to visualize in their minds in order to feel emotion. Mm -hmm. Compare these two sentences. When she came to the understanding, she felt great sadness. And when she read the letter, she threw up her hands and burst into tears. Mm -hmm. The first one has a nominalization, the understanding, and a conceptual word, sadness. The second one has picture words, letter, hands, tears. Remember, no visualization, no emotion. And no emotion means your copy is not going to work. So no nominalization. I think what I'm taking away from this is something that you taught me very early on, which is whoever does the most work is the one that keeps the money. And if you're making the reader do the work, they're having to figure out, well, what does this mean? I have to interpret this and I have to visualize it for myself. They're doing all the work. They're going to keep the money. But if you if you uh, simply spell it out for them and, and make it very easy for them to understand, it keeps them in the flow. It keeps them pulled into your copy. And since you did the work, you get to keep the money. Yeah, great way to look at it. And nominalizations is a perfect example of that. Hey, let me ask you something. How would you like a complete copywriting course packed into a $10 Kindle book? Yeah? Then let me invite you to try Breakthrough Copywriting. It's only $10 and it's available now on Amazon as a Kindle. 
Breakthrough Copywriting was originally a $5,000 live seminar I held in Las Vegas. People flew in from all over the world to attend Breakthrough Copywriting. This Kindle book by the same name is a complete version of my four presentations at the seminar. If you would like to dig into copywriting basics or refresh the knowledge you already have, then you'll really like Breakthrough Copywriting. A-listers like John Carlton, Joe Sugarman, and Bob Bly give this book an A+, and you can read the reviews right on the Amazon site. This episode of the Copywriters Podcast is sponsored by Breakthrough Copywriting. Check this book out at Amazon.com today. And now, back to the Copywriters Podcast program, already in progress. Let's go to number four. Tactic four is the antidote to the curse of knowledge. This comes from the book I don't like as much, The Sense of Style by Steven Pinker. But I do like this part very much. You've probably heard of the phrase, the curse of knowledge before. And we've talked about it on this podcast. And anyone who's read Chip and Dan Heath's book, the great book, Made to Stick, has at least run across that phrase. Many people, including me, think that Chip and Dan Heath came up with this phrase. Well, I thought that, and it turns out an economist came up with the phrase 20 years before the Heath brothers put the curse of knowledge in their book and on the map, although in their book, they didn't attribute it to the person who came up with it, as far as I can see. The economist who came up with it was Robin Hogarth. Hmm. But the important thing about the curse of knowledge is not who came up with it. It's that until you are aware of it and deal with it, it can put a huge roadblock in your copy. Here's what Steven Pinker says in his book. The curse of knowledge is the single best explanation I know of why people, why good people, write bad prose. It simply doesn't occur to the writer that her readers don't know what she knows, that they haven't mastered the patois of her guild, can't divine the missing steps that seem too obvious to mention, have no way to visualize a scene that to her is clear as day. And so she doesn't bother to explain the jargon or spell out the logic or supply the necessary detail. That's good. I don't like the patois of her guild part, but that's just <laughs> me. He, he has a right. He has a right to remain silent too. Okay. Getting free of the curse of knowledge is not a one and done escape. The whole answer is getting into your reader's head and figuring out what they know and don't know and what they understand and don't understand and filling in the gaps. But of course, that's easier than it sounds, and it's usually a multi-step process. So you do it in pieces. Here are a few things that are doable to get started. Whenever you can, replace jargon words with words that a non-expert can understand. If you must use a jargon word, do the same thing that journalists do. Put an explainer after the jargon word, like this. Facebook pixel. The tiny bit of computer code a Facebook ad drops onto a user's computer so it can identify the person later to serve them up with a new ad. Show your copy to someone in your market who's not an expert and get them to point out what they don't understand. Mm -hmm. Keep rewriting that part until they say it's super clear. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts about, you probably have a lot of thoughts about the curse of knowledge. I just have a feeling. I have one that I'm going to emphasize. I have a lot of friends that in the work that I do, I hang out with a lot of computer programmers, website developers, stuff like that. And they usually are brilliant at what they do, 
and horrible at explaining what they do because they assume that everybody else knows all of the stuff that they know. And it's not just when it comes to computer and web design. They're horrible at explaining to clients what's possible and what's not possible. But in their everyday relationships, they just assume that everybody else is as smart as they are and thinks the way that they do. And they have horrible times communicating. And I'm guilty of this myself, but I really see it with a lot of the web and tech guys that I work with. And it's such a human thing to just assume everybody knows and thinks the way that we do. And in copy, you have to make a conscious effort to not fall into that trap. So what I like to think of when I'm writing copy is I like to put myself in the position of that tech geek who's 15 IQ points above the rest of the population and trying to communicate, assuming that everybody knows everything that I know and remembering how frustrating that is. And then I step back and I say, okay, I need to dumb it down and make sure that I'm not talking over the heads of my audience. Man, that, that is a, a million dollar part. That is great. That is so good. I love that. Okay, everybody, rewind rewind the tape and listen to what Nathan just said again. No, really, that's good. That's good. Never heard it put that way, but I like it a lot. All right, let's go to tactic five. Start intriguing to keep them reading. This is from Unwriting Well. So we've saved the first for last. This is about your lead, your first sentence. Now, what I'm going to share with you, Zinsser was talking about, he was talking about, for the lead of a newspaper or magazine article. And in copy, when we have advertorials, those are kind of based on newspaper or magazine articles. But his tips are also based on the same principles we use in copy. Listen to what he says. Readers want to know very soon what's in it for them. Therefore, your lead must capture the reader immediately and force him to keep reading. It must conjole him with freshness or novelty or paradox or humor or surprise or with an unusual idea or an interesting fact or a question. Anything will do as long as it nudges his curiosity and tugs at his sleeve. Uh, Just a quick note, this was originally published in 1976 when writers like Zinser didn't realize that women and girls know how to read too. (laughs) Okay. Zinzer points out that the hardest part of a writer's job is hooking the reader, which is what the writer must do for the lead to be successful. Mm-hmm. I agree. Nathan, I bet you agree. Mm-hmm. Agree? Yeah. So it's worth spending more time on your headline and your lead than you do on any other 50 or 100 words in your copy. Now, what works in a lead? Well, surprising and yet still relevant information is not always, but very often, the key to success of a lot of leads. Zinser says, salvation often lies not in the writer's style, but in some odd fact he or she was able to discover. And congratulations to Zinser for that sentence, where by saying he or she, He acknowledges that writers can be male or female. Progress, we take it where we can get it. And that's it. The only thing that I would add to that, 
and this is a separate book, will not be in the show notes, but Wired for Story was one of those books where I really learned how to write a captivating lead because the author, she spells out the things that grab your attention and make it hard to look away when it comes to writing. So in addition to the books we talked about today, Wired for Story is another book that's great for writing leads. That's fantastic. I love that book. I never thought of it in this context because I think of it kind of in the bucket of stories, but you're absolutely right. And uh, that's, a, that's a really inventive use of, of that book. So it's fantastic. Well, yeah, we, and we put in the links for On Writing Well and Style Lessons and Clarity and Grace and The Sense of Style. Put Amazon links in there if you want to get any of those books. And I suggest you get all two of the ones I like. <laughs> all right. And I, I'm going to come to Steven Pinker's defense. I like most of his books. I haven't read this particular one, but I have read a few of his books, and he is a brilliant thinker. I don't know if I would read a book of his on tips on writing, but I do think he is a good writer. So what you're saying, you're saying Pinker is not a stinker. Pinker is a brilliant thinker. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that okay. is... That is a great way to end this episode. David, thank you for putting this together. And listeners yeah. out there, if you want to check out more, head on over to copywriterspodcast.com. And until next time, man, we will catch you later. Catch you later. Before we go, a quick question. Would you like to have me as a guest on your podcast? Let me give you an easy way to contact me about that. We've put up a form on garfinkelmedia.com, and it won't take much more than a minute to fill it out. So if you'd like to have me on your show, just go to garfinkelmedia.com and fill out the form. That's garfinkelmedia.com. Thanks, and see you next time on the Copywriters Podcast. This is the Copy and Funnels Podcast Network.